Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today has recently written an essay in the Chronicle of Higher Education entitled Abolish the Business Major. Here's a taste. The business major is for students who want a college degree without a college education. The philosopher Tal Brewer has written that the very notion of business school is an oxymoron. The word scholar derives from the Greek word for leisure. Colleges are places where people step aside from the world of need, from the world of business, to engage in reflection. Devoted to discussion and thought unfolding under its own internal demands, a college without cannot with integrity offer training for the sort of life that has no place for such thought. Business schooling is a scole of the negation of scole. This essay was excerpted from Johann Neem's new book, What's the Point of College? Seeking Purpose in an Age of Reform. It is a provocative collection of short, punchy essays written from the standpoint of a historian, but ranging across the entire terrain of the modern university. I think that uh, forms a nice trilogy with previous conversations we've had this year with David Staley and Chris Gallagher. I should note that all three of these books have been published by the Johns Hopkins University Press. Johan Neem is professor of history at Western Washington University. His most recent book was Democracy Schools, The Rise of Public Education in America. And you can listen to us discuss that book in episode 112. So this is Johan's second appearance on Historically Thinking. Johan Neem, thank you for joining us on Historically Thinking again. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here again. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, so am I. Um, because you... Uh, take shots at all sorts of sacred cows that I also enjoy firing a paintball gun against. And also because uh, sometimes the um, it's the tyranny of small differences between the two of us that makes this interesting. So uh, let's start off with what do you have against business majors? You crass bully, you, you ivory tower humanist. What's wrong with a business major that I haven't already so, said? <laughs> so for starters... Um, that chapter comes following two other chapters yes, it does. On, on STEM and the humanities. Yes. So in the context of the book, it's looking at the different languages we use to talk about different things we do in the university. Mm -hmm. And so excerpted from that context, it reads a little bit more on its own than it would within that context. Mm -hmm. But I mean, what I'll have against the business. But you I still ran it in the Chronicle because you, you did want to still, poke I people still in the eyes. I still every word in it, right? Yeah. That um, that a business major is a way to evade getting an education. Um, so what do I have against a business major? I mean, I think, I think to be clear, I don't have, it's not something against business. Mm. So let's start with that. All right. I think that most of us will enter the world of the for-profit or non-profit sector and provide goods and services that our society needs. This is kind of a duty of being a part of a social order. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so what I'm trying to do in this book is basically set boundaries, say, look, you know, there's all kinds of education. What is the kind of education that belongs in what we call a college, right? A four year college that has some link to the tradition 
of early modern universities and liberal arts education and what does not and how do we understand those things and so from that perspective i think you know when one looks at the curriculum of undergraduate business majors management majors marketing majors they're very much focused on training people to do a specific kind of task or set of tasks and they don't provide the same kind of broad education that's foundational and that fundamentally is what I have against it. It's against the ethos of the university, which is about intellectual exploration. If we had a program in business studies that was similar to a program in ethnic studies or gender studies or environmental studies, that would be a whole different thing. But that's not what the business major is designed to do. The second thing is, I think, just to be clear, I don't think it would have any real costs because employers consistently ask for certain kinds of skills and aptitudes and that the data suggests that those skills are developed better in the arts and sciences and I am a humanist but I'm also a big advocate of the sciences and basic research in the sciences and so I think that many people would be better prepared to enter the world of business and the second piece of that is I think we want people to go into business thinking about the goods and services they're providing. So having a background in things like sociology or philosophy or political science or economics, as well as things like chemistry and math and physics. And so I think we'd have, you know, better business people. Mm. Well, I also think that it's coming through a completely practical uh, uh, part of this. Have you ever tried to deconvert business majors? Because I have. I say I said that proudly. Um, have you put your money, in other words, have you put your position where your mouth is? Because I, I told this to you mean a, with students. Yes, I've tried in my office. First year students. Yeah. I'm a business major. My first, my next question: Why? Yeah. Um, I had told this to a former provost recently, and and her eyes got really big, and I could imagine just I could just see her fingers itching to send me a, a admonitory email, even though that she wasn't my provost. Um, well, what I do, I teach a course called College in America. Yeah, we should talk about that in a second. One. But yeah, and and. As a professor, I, 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 I sort of focus on teaching the texts or ideas that are in front of us that day, not walking in and say, this one is right, this one is wrong. Um, and so I'm very careful with my students to provide them a cross-section of arguments. So my students would see writers talking about the need for more vocational, more practical education as well as arguments for the benefits of a broader liberal general education. And students have been converted, mm. because, but not because I said to them, you should not be a business major. I find that doesn't work. What I do tell them is, I do, a, I do spend time in my, all my introductory courses saying, let's think about the kinds of majors you have at a comprehensive university like Western Washington University. And I put them into categories. Here are the art, liberal arts and sciences, here are pre-professional and professional majors. And I say you shouldn't put them into the same box. And that's kind of why this chapter on business majors could be extended to some, certain other kinds of technical and health majors. Um, I said if you want to be in this box, if you, and I say, okay, you've got to make some choices at a school like ours because the choices are not made for you. Mm. So what kind of education do you want? What will be the outcomes of that education? What might be some possible paths that that education would prepare you for? And then students, what that does do is open up students to ask the question, what do I want to do with my time in college? 
and what will be the costs or benefits of that. But I don't try to go in and say, you're wrong. I'd yeah. rather open up their minds and let them make those choices. Well, that's sweet. Um, I, I mean, sure. But I also, uh, I, my argument with them was totally practical. Um, just about all the business majors in my office, when asked, said they wanted to get an MBA. And so I said, why are you getting a business major then? Do you wish to redo all that? Because the MBA is going to say, well, this business degree is trap. I mean, I don't care that you got a business degree. Right. If you wish to spend four years doing what you're going to do for another two years, well, be my guest. But in the, main, in the meantime, I think that you should be a more interesting person, which is what business schools are, try are looking for. That's what admissions people are always looking for, interesting people. Um, and it's not particularly interesting to an MBA program to have yet another business major apply. You'd be much better off to learn two more languages uh, and to learn to read and write a, a great deal better than you can now. Um, that's what I would. That's what I would say. And if you happen to major in history, of course, we'd be welcome. To, we'd love to have you. Um, I kind. Of, I, my second point is, is that I think a lot ever since the two thousand seven two thousand eight. Um, the, how shall we put it, the general education major switches from uh, age to age. In the 80s, it was psychology. Um, it's been communications for a while. That was obviously the psychology major of the, of the late 90s and early 21st century. I think it switched to business. Uh, people weren't sure what to do, but they knew there was a problem and they should learn some business. So I think we have a lot of un essentially undecided majors in business. In my own undergraduate school, it was international studies. I was an international studies major because I didn't really know what else I wanted to do. Uh, and the majority of students were in national studies. And a bunch of uh, history professors worked on me and, as it were, converted me away. But I was never really part of the faith. Um, I think it's a natural college process. Um, and I don't, think, um, I don't think humanists should be scared to make persuasive arguments to undergraduates about why they should major, as a previous guest has said, um, and we'll link to that in the show notes, why they should major in what they actually love. Well, I do tell them that. I mean, I do, I do share that with them. I think the fact that MBA programs want people who have majored in the arts and sciences is in part evidence that there's an awareness at these graduate programs that people who have become insightful about the world and develop certain kind of skills with letters and numbers are actually going to be the kind of people you want running major organizations. And um, I think that in some ways, it's not only that the business major is, I use the word unethical, meaning it's against the ethos of the col undergraduate college purposes of college, but I also think it's somewhat unethical to allow students this opt-out that actually doesn't serve them well in the long run. does not. And, and, and they, they don't know that always. No. And that's the challenge. I mean, the other reason business majors become more prominent is it's not that they've just grown at, you know, traditional institutions. It's also that a lot of, we've had this push to expand the number of Americans with degrees and a lot of the degrees we're offering, especially through online institutions, are kind of these generic business degrees. And it's really about expanding the number of degrees. But I'm saying in this book, 
and I open with this question, do we care about the degrees or do we care about the education? Mm. And I, what it, I'm it trying to lay out is we should care about the education. And it correlates, I'm sure, and I should ask someone like Mark Salisbury, who's been on the program many times, uh, who knows the data. I'm sure I, I would stake you a nice dinner that it correlates with first-generation college students as well. Um, particularly for the parents of first-generation college students who are scared, apprehensive, quite rightly, about sure. what, what everyone's going sure. to end up paying. And they want to have the competence and satisfaction of knowing that their 18-year-old is going to be doing something that might be able to pay it back. Um, right. And so I, I always saw, uh, at all my institutions, I was, even at a interesting regional liberal arts college in the Midwest, I was always curious how many... Um, first-generation college students we have. And so I found myself in um, orientation sessions or new student outreach, really trying to educate parents about the where a history major would end up in the job force uh, and trying to explain that it wasn't basically like taking a 38 and putting it to the head of your future, you know, uh, monetary advancement um, right. and pulling the trigger. Um they can be hard conversations, you know. I um. I had a first generation, or I think a first generation student who had a sort of similar background to mine, immigrant, you know, um, and came in as an engineering major, and was taking my college in America class, <laughs> and then said, came into my office and said, and I'd met, I I'd met, I think his mother and aunt downtown when they were visiting, just because we happened to be on the same street corner, so. You know, I had this sort of sense of him and his family, and he said, "I think I'm going to switch majors from engineering." And I said, "Are you having problems? You know, is it is it? Do you need help with the work?" And he's like, "No, I'm really good at math. I really enjoy. You know, I can do it great." And he's, I said, "Okay." And there was this part of me that's like, part of what I'm trying to teach you is you should pursue the thing you love in college, and that you know, I teach them about like happiness studies that show if you meet a certain threshold, that almost any college major will get you. People, every additional dollar after that is gravy, you know, in terms of utility curves and things like that. I teach them that often you can't, there's so much noise and there's more overlap between majors and there, you know, mm. yes, you know, certain kinds of engineers will always make more than perhaps a social worker, a minister or a cellist. But in the bulk of things, you could be a political science major and outperform a business major and you could, you know, and so that opens up the space for them to think about that. But there was this part of me that's like, Oh, your parents are going to be so mad. <laughs> and, and, the, and, they, and they're going to come after you, you know? too. Yeah, they, you know, they, they won't have We any... need engineers. Are you sure you want to change your major? <laughs> yeah, we do. And, and he's good at it, too. It's and he like, was good at it. It's and like we me, won't engineers. Me, the, but at the same time, that's ex you want people to come to college and say, you know, I actually found this other thing yeah. that I love. And I think I can do some good in the world by learning about this thing. But what he'll find is, is whatever he ends up doing is that he'll still be good at math. He'll right, st he'll still have that in whatever he yeah. ends up, and it'll be like his secret ring of power. Right, you know? um, right. No, it's still good to have. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, the what's the underlying premise of the book? Uh, you actually give that on what page one forty five. You say America's colleges are universities are adrift because they are being asked to, to do too much, and are being pulled in multiple directions. Um, please explain. Well, you know, 
I think the ultimate premise of this book is that if the university or the college, so I'm really concerned mostly with undergraduate yeah. collegiate education, not graduate professional education. Oh, you, you talk, if, well, we'll get, we're going to get to graduate. You do have some very yeah, interesting things I, to say about graduate education. But, but the bulk of the book is focused on what we consider the undergraduate education. And my perspective is that if the university is an academic institution, then it is committed to not training. It's not even necessarily committed to expertise, narrowly defined. It's committed to seeking and sharing truth about the world. And so intellectual virtues, as I say, should be the fundamental guide to determine what should be taught and researched and protected and what shouldn't. But those virtues depend on people actually practicing them. So we need to also remember that a university is not just a place that provides credits and degrees. They also cultivate certain kinds of practices like engaging in scholarly questions that both professors and students need to learn how to do. And they need to internalize it because a virtue is something that becomes internal. So the culture of your university matters a lot. In a society where universities are being told any kind of education we need, you must do, those virtues can become, you know, a minority voice almost on some campuses. And they certainly can be, um, you can have a culture that is, you know, what Clark Kerr called the multiversity, you know, a university that's real common things are administration and parking. And I think that doesn't work. And so we need to, so the underlying premise of this book is if we think the co college is for academic purposes, what is academic and how do we ensure that the people on a campus do things that cultivate their intellect. Mm -hmm. Part of this that we in a previous conversation with uh, Chris Gallagher, and I, have to, I, mm -hmm. I can't off the tip, off the top of my head, know if this conversation will appear before or after his. I think after his. So listeners will already have heard it. Uh, he is describing the threat of unbundling, uh, but then makes a, a major concession that really. We've already unbundled, unbundled the modern university, the undergraduate or the or, or research one or research two university is already unbundled. That it's, um, to paraphrase, yes, Prime Minister, it's a loose confederation of warring tribes, and with students in the middle. Um, there, there are lots of different. It's, it's no, there is no coherence within it, and that's what that you're suggesting as well. I mean, I use those exact words, do, yeah. that there's no coherence, there, that the university is incoherent. It's being told it has to, you know, train nurses and philosophers. Mm -hmm. I think we should train, we should, we should have institutions that train nurses and train philosophers, but I don't know that it works in the same institution. Right. And uh, we've tried to put so much in one place. Yeah. We add and we add and we add and add. no one would build a car. Not even General Motors would build a car like this. No. I mean, you put a lot of things on a GM steering wheel, but still. And still. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are, think, there are I limits. Part, <laughs> right. um, I think that, you know, that part of one of the one of the things I say at the end of the book also is that in sort of laying this out, that there are academic purposes to academic institutions, they're grounded in the sort of arts and sciences. This is a broad general education to cultivate insight about the world and to habituate people into seeking that insight, you know, which means repeating that practice over and over until people are transformed. I mean, that I went to college, you know, 
moderately intellectually interested, but it was through the repeated process of engaging in courses that asked me to explore the world that I think I started to develop the habit of asking questions about the world in certain ways. And that's what education should do. But I also say, look, that is not to say one should not become a police officer or a carpenter or a barista or a brain surgeon. Like it's not also that college should be seen as step one before step two. And if you were to get a, you know, a physics degree or an English degree or a history degree and then say, you know what I really want to do? I want to build cabinetry. And you went back and became an apprentice and learned to do carpentry. Mm-hmm. How is that a waste of your education? It's not. And similarly, um, if a nurse wants to study literature and become insightful, that's still good for them and for society. Mm. So let's keep these things separate in our heads. They're not just one or the other. Yes, college prepares you for a whole range of careers and for graduate work and professional school, but it, you know, its purpose is to create ins- insight and allow people to become more intellectually sophisticated, and that's good enough. Let's talk a little bit about this course. You've already referred to it a couple of times, Going to College in America. Um, you describe the deep emotional reactions from some students. You've already, you've already touched on a couple already. Yeah. You describe those different ones in the book. Um, it's a very interesting class then. I wish I could teach that class. It's a, it's a, it's, that's right up my, uh, right inside my wheelhouse as well. So what, what is this class? Describe it a little bit more and, and some of the reactions and, and why do you think these reactions happen? Well, so the class, it's an introductory course, you know, general education course. I think what makes it particularly special for me and makes it work for students is that it doesn't start with something that no one is interested in. So my other general education course that is often very fun is called U.S. History to 1865. Mm-hmm. But that's not a question. That's not even what brought me into history. You know, There's no like, what is U.S. History to 1865? But why am I in college? Students are, care about that question, and that opens them up to certain kinds of explorations. It's interdisciplinary. So I, you know, there is a, there's a ghost of Christmas past. There's a lot of history. But there's also the ghost of Christmas present where we're drawing on economics and philosophy and sociology and lots of different you know, disciplines and fields. Um, and we're reading a lot of contemporary work and sources. And, and then there's some explorations about the ghost to Christmas future. And I think for students, I mean, they've been on a pipeline. They've been told they need a college degree, but they've never been asked, what kind of education do you want? And they've never understood why does college look the way it does? So the historical piece does two things. It opens them up to see see why things are the way they are in a certain kind of developmental way. But it also makes the present a little more foreign to them because it's not just natural. It's not just what is. And they become aware of things like, oh, you know, what is our general education kind of look like what Harvard looked like in 1800? That was all you did once. There weren't majors. There weren't. There was certainly no kind of, you know, it was seen as practical, but it wasn't professional. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they become aware of these changes. But I think it's a, the emotions come out because there's so much pressure on them. Mm -hmm. We live in a society with, you know, we have very bad economic planning. We have very bad labor policies. It's very hard nowadays to figure out how do you um, stay in, much less make it into the middle class. Um, people have a lot of fears about the effects of technology and globalization, and the only answer we've provided people is get a degree. 
So this opens them up to say, oh, what kind of degree? What kind of education is behind different degrees? Why am I here? What forces have led to me being in this space? And what forces have led this space to look the way it does? And for some people, it can be just too much. Because it asks them to say, okay, maybe I had some preconceptions that are not true. Maybe things I thought were true aren't true. Maybe I don't know. You know, they read studies that say, if you want to make it today, major only in STEM and business. And they read studies that say that if you want to make it today, you need a broad liberal education that prepares you for the jobs of tomorrow. And they're like, those contradict each other. Which one is right? And I said, well, I don't teach the future. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but there is, we don't know, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's hard because... They're going in debt often. You know, I'm not at, you know, I'm in a school like most professors are like, I think, you know, uh, a school with a lot of first generation students, a school with a lot of middle class students, but not, you know, not University of Michigan and not Princeton, you know, and, and students are very bright. They're very caring, but they just don't know. Yeah. They've never been told education is a public good. That was news for them. You know, they were told they got to get a degree to get a job. Mm -hmm. we, they've, they've been told by leaders, by their counselors, by their parents, that this is a private good. And these are good people. And some of them open up in their papers to me and say, wow, I never realized that some of these things we do are because there's a public good side to education. But I believe in it, yeah. you know, when I, but I didn't know it. It is invariably when I would give a, my standard lecture to my right, well, this was like the, um, one of those general college introduction classes, uh, Augustana, that we called, you know, first year inquiry fyi yeah. see clever see what we did there um yeah. and i would give them the liberal arts lecture um and this is what liberal arts are you know there's a survival on the liberal arts uh, we don't want to we don't emphasize that connection but there is uh the liberal arts are 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 not just for free people they create free people right, Cre right. people who wish to enjoy their liberty in a right. proper and rational way. And right. there's a reason why liberal arts colleges in the early Republic exploded. in a, as we've discussed before, I think in the last time we talked in an absolutely unprecedented way, right? Uh, because in the new Republic, everyone saw that they needed to have, as it were young men at the time, and then increasingly schools for Republican mothers as well, uh, because uh, they needed to have educated children. Uh, and the only way you could do that is to educate young women. But this, this is there's a reason for this explosion of education in the early United States. This is all new to them. Whoever I knew this was a liberal arts college, but no one explained to me what that meant. You know, that's the thing I've learned. You know that they actually don't know what those terms mean. Yeah, they have no idea, and they don't realize it has content and value of its own. So a lot of students come in thinking the liberal arts and the majors in the liberal arts are for people who don't know what they want to do. Right. They never, and they're surprised to realize that actually they have purposes distinct and of, and of their own. And if you want some of those purposes as part of your education, it's not, it's not just an absence of a purpose. It is a purpose. And, and I've sort of, I guess I've been pleased by how many students really are open to that when they learn it. But I've been disheartened by students just having come in and said, I had no idea that there was any content to liberal education. And also the um, – and well, this gets us to another area 
the uh, they're always shocked when I say that, oh, yeah, math and, and science are an essential part of the liberal arts. You know, uh, I couldn't one couldn't imagine the liberal arts without math and science um, that we've created this new this thing, STEM, uh, which now is um, so unmoored from any previous concept of what it means to be educated um, as the late, I think Peter Lawler used to say, the problem with STEM is, and, and this is different than yours, isn't the S, the E, or the M. The problem is usually those aren't involved in STEM. It's just took. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's took. It's just, uh, you know, utilitarian technological yeah. stuff, uh, which yeah. is a step up from, you know, a, a good technical academy for learning important things like how to rewire a refrigerator or air conditioner. Right. I don't make, I'm not dismissing that. But the problem is, is now we can, we're going to charge you for four years to learn how to do something yeah. related to that, to learn the t. Yeah, no, that's true enough. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, I see STEM as a kind of, um, kind of a Frankenstein, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's the putting together of things that should not be put together. You know, the arts and sciences are at the heart of a college education and the, disciplines therefore of the arts and sciences things like english where you learn literary criticism history philosophy economics math physics chemistry biology geology these were all seen as part of a shared enterprise of inquiry and insight and creating the liberal-minded person who has some sort of purchase on the world yeah and you know, and, and and the major was somewhat arbitrary to that. The major was the completion of a general education where you learned some depth in relation to the general education you had in all these disciplines. Mm -hmm. So you would, you know, so that's why you take humanities, social sciences, natural sciences, you know, but also not just natural sciences, the physical and the biological sciences. So you get, so you see your own work in a major in relationship to these other pieces. Um, STEM basically is a vocational enterprise. It takes the sciences and says their value is reduced to their cash value in training workers or creating products. And the older vision of the sciences as being part of a sort of world where the universities engage in basic research for knowledge and share that knowledge widely, and it was for the public good, is threatened by that. Also threatened is this link that the arts and sciences are connected. So more and more schools, for example, are putting their social sciences and humanities in a separate college from their STEM schools. Yeah. So suddenly chemists and historians are not in the same room together. And the premise is they're not doing the same thing. Well, they ought to be in the same room together doing the same thing. And the engineers and the computer scientists should be in a different room. And, it's, and then the this sort of like STEAM, this sort of like... Pick, worse. It's even worse. It's pick huh. me, sort of the pick me, pick me uh, variation yeah. on STEM. It's like well, and what we really want is steam. Steam. Because we want the humanities in there. Steam. So yes. steam. Yeah, steam. Right. But that. But what it really does, it says these other neither humanities or the fine arts or the sciences have any value for the things that they do on their own. Yeah. Yeah. Their value is purely instrumental to these other things yeah. that I see are not the goods of education. And, and the arts and the humanity, the arts and the humanities will only be valuable insofar as we can support a, a this the T, the T yeah. of of STEM. Right. Um, so we should not have STEAM, we should not have STEM, and we should get rid of STEAM. Like none of those things belong on a college campus, but the sciences definitely do. Yeah. Right. This is not an argument to get rid of 
scientific literacy, scientific knowledge, or scientific well, research. Well, I, I have to say, I don't know. What I remember encountering someone from Caltech who was, you know, an astrophysicist, but he had also like his minor was in Celtic history, and he knew nice. and he knew <laughs> Latin. And I don't know how many historians out there know like we do tensor calculus instead of the crossword puzzle, yeah. just you know, just to like or straighten out, or you know, even fiddle around with Euclid. You know, just yeah. to like prove so. So it, it's it, we've got there are many wonderful books. Freeman Dyson uh, should have been a Nobel laureate. Steve Weinberg, who was many physicists, have written wonderful books about science. Uh, it hasn't really gone the other way. So in, in a way, steam has been going on, bubbling along quite nicely for a while. Yeah. Um, Dyson always said the reason why he was a great mathematician is that he went to a classical grammar school, yeah. um, that he was a li liberally arts liberal arts trained. Um, and then also did math as a treat, um, but whatever. Uh, it's it, it ruins in, the in treat, a way. Man. In a way, like, in a way, this this breaks what's been going on rather well for the last in the last century. You know, um, so uh, Einstein played the violin. I don't know how well, but it was related to. It was somehow related to mathematics. Certainly, music sure. music well, was. And traditionally, they have been, right? Traditionally, they always music have been. And music and math were seen as very much, you know, part of the same yeah, they're part of the, formation. They're part of the quadrivium. Yep. Um, so, yep. Um, okay, let's stop ranting about Let's rant about something else. Um, sure. You uh, say that uh, we shouldn't sell the humanities as teaching people to read, write, and speak well. Um, what are you talking about? That's the old, that's like my, that's like the thin end of my wedge. That's how I always try to persuade people to major in, in history. Reading, writing, speaking well. Um, that's what they're going to be doing, hopefully, for the rest of their life. So they better learn how to do it well. So it depends what you mean by read, write, and speak well, uh -huh. right? Um, and what I, what I argue in my chapter in Humanities is when we effectively stemify, vocationalize, read, write, and speaking so that its only value is instrumental to... Um, you know, something abstract like critical thinking. Yeah. Then which is, it has doesn't no exist. grounding. I mean, what's thinking that's not critical? In the purposes of reading, writing, and speaking well, which is gaining insight through reading, <laughs> and then processing that insight and sharing it through writing. And so it has to be grounded in a sort of understanding that the humanities exist to produce certain forms of knowledge and to produce people who are seeking and practicing and thinking through those forms of knowledge. And, and I think that that is in some ways both not necessarily the Renaissance understanding of humanism, where these were very much practical skills that were preparatory. And it's also now what I say is the neoliberal arts, right? That it's also today we say, let's, the humanities only matter if they teach critical thinking. And I actually have a chapter that challenges whether we can actually say that critical thinking is a thing because I think there's no such thing as critical thinking. Well, but, I, I didn't, I, I, I couldn't do that chapter because I agree too much um, with that chapter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but, but critical, part, of, part yeah. of what I mean by that is critical thinkers are not people who have some abstract instrumental skill that's just independent of everything else. They're people who have engaged in thinking critically about some things. Yes. And reading, writing, and speaking are ways in which we, our minds process that, mm -hmm. the ways in which we can convey those thoughts to others, the ways in which we can get those thoughts into our own heads either through speaking or reading other people with other people yes and what happened is we've extracted that from that that sort of life world in which those words have meaning 
And so I'm saying extracted from that, it's a dangerous thing. It's, it's basically stemifying the humanities. They're only valuable if they, for these purposes, but they're not valuable if they actually teach you to read, write, and speak well. You know? right. um, well, I, and so that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, I, 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 of course, I agree with that. Um, I don't know. <laughs> the, the, you can't read and write. What are you going to read, write, and speak about is always my question. And there has to be something you're going to read, write, and speak about. And, of course, there are different ways of thinking. Because right. there, there is no such thing as well. First of all, there is no such th thing as critical thinking. Um, right. There are different ways of thinking. Um, all thinking is supposed to be critical, um, and most people in the think the most important thinking they do is they are being critical. Um, the but are you going to think like a historian? Or are you going to think like a philosopher? And those are two different ways of thinking um, and two different ways of reading. As you, as you know, um, I find it very difficult to read philosophy because I don't read slow enough. Uh, right. I, I'm a historian. I read fast because um, yeah. I've got another t one linear feed of documents to scan through. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. So that's I've been trained right. through, right. you know, archival time uh, hours to read fast um, by the way the seminar works. Right. How many books we read a different book in a history seminar, at least a different book every week. Right. Where a philosophy seminar might just focus on two or one or three, but right. not many because they're reading, they're learning a different way of thinking. Right. So this talk about critical thinking is always so abstracted um, yeah. that it's dangerous. And it's wrong. And it's, I mean, it, it actually doesn't measure what it thinks it measures. No, and so part of what I point out is, you know, that whether we're talking to K-12 or college, gains in critical thinking happen when people are exposed to ideas and knowledge that they can then use when asked to take a test on critical thinking. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, we're testing critical thinking, but we're actually testing something else, which is to what extent do these people have the background knowledge to think critically about the subject that's mm -hmm. being asked. Mm -hmm. So if I were given a test on something that I had no idea about, I'd do terribly. Well, I, I don't think, I mean, this is the, our, Lendl Calder, who's been an, often a guest, and and others. I think Sam Weinberg has also done this. This is a, sort of a parlor trick yeah. amongst the historical thinking crowd. They would have you and uh, an undergraduate, and you're studying a text of Chinese history, uh, and you would do a much better job uh, than even the undergrad, undergrad who's majoring in Asian history and, and Chinese, specifically Chinese history. I mean, I don't think you've ever done Chinese history before, but you'll be able to interpret the text because of the way that you think about them. And then sure. the, the, the trick then always is they give a 20, a 20 question multiple uh, choice exam and the professor bombs out, uh, has no idea what these, and the, and the kid does fine, the student, the undergraduate, because uh, she's just done this class and she knows the answers to the, uh, to the test, uh, but she wasn't able to read it as a historical thinker. And I, I think that is something that is, I, so, I, I don't think that denies your point. I think it amplifies it maybe in a different direction. Well, I think we need both, right? I mean, yeah. I think increasingly this idea that there are these things called skills and there's this thing called content knowledge are just simply not true. And, you know, people can't think in the abstract without thinking about material, but the material is not secondary. So there used to be a version where people would say, well, you have to have something to think about. But what matters is the thinking, as if the thinking can be extracted from the material at hand 
And the flip side was you can't think about something you don't know anything about. The reality is you don't know anything about anything until you think about it. Well, <laughs> so yeah, I would learn I, how to think about it through a discipline. I would agree so, that it's it, it would be um, the goal is not to for everyone to be like the professor in that example. The, of course, the goal is for the undergraduate to actually learn the professor's skills, so that all of a sudden she has context and ability to have a very much richer and deeper understanding of Chinese history, of that past. And then be but able if you to put then be in that room with a Chinese historian, right? Who had more background knowledge than I did. Yes, that person would do better than me. Yes, they would. Right. So it's yes. a little unfair. So there are different ways of thinking about how you. There cut are. That, right. Yeah. Yeah. So my disciplinary skills are presumably better than an undergraduate's in mm -hmm. history. On the other hand, if you put me with another person who had similar disciplinary skills but and had the, read a lot of Chinese history and the language, and yes. you. <laughs> and maybe, Able to understand oh, the deep level yeah. of metaphor and and uh, 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 you know uh, ambiguity that's always present. Um, yeah, uh, let's the endow in my early you know 18th century world. Yeah, exactly. Um, let's move to another topic. Um, PhDs. Uh, I think what you say is fabulous because I agree with you completely. <laughs> so let's. Uh, so. We, uh, in effect, nice change. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a change. Um, in effect, what are PhDs for these days? I do not think that people realize this. Um, they're for teaching undergraduates while they are graduate students. The majority of PhDs then are useless to an institution once they've gotten their degree. Uh, is that more or less your argument? That is not my argument, but okay. it is certainly an argument, you know. Yeah. Um, I think the argument you're making is that universities unconsciously um, exploit their graduate students by having them teach undergraduates. Mm -hmm. And then at which, once the at which most of them, for which most of them are unprepared to do, not their fault. And, and are paid very little to do. Yep. And then after that, there's no jobs waiting for those PhDs to become professors. Mm -hmm. So if this is an apprenticeship towards mastery, there's no place to become a master. Right. Right. And and yet we're trapped and, in this. So we everyone knows, I think, that we're producing too many PhDs. Well, I think there's two ways to answer that. We're either under hiring PhDs because let's let's keep in mind we've expanded the number of students who go to college. Yeah. And what we've done instead is two things. Either A, rely on graduate students or contingent faculty, adjunct faculty, or B, create new kinds of schools with no faculty. Right. And perpetuating uh, the... Neither of which, for various reasons, I would argue, are either good in and of itself, mm -hmm. much less good for students. This is, and, and, and when we do this, I mean, this is... Um, we, we, I passed over some of your critiques of for-profit education, but I discussed this a little bit with Chris Gallagher. Uh, most of the for-profit unbundlers are reproducing some of the worst aspects of contemporary higher, stuff that has been invented within the academy already. One of those things he calls adjunctification, yeah. um, basic, where all um, teachers are fungible adjuncts, yeah. which can be hired for, can be hired for very little to do. Well, the other thing, right, right. If you believe that. Scholarship takes time. Insight takes time. That's there should be academic freedom in the classroom. 
adjuncts have very little of those things, right? The security that. of time, right? We know how long it takes historians to write a book. Mm. If we think that book has value, we need to invest in it. We know how long it can take to produce a scientific insight and how much money it can take and how much scientists work to get the grants to to keep themselves going for you know many years. If we think that science has value, we need to create context in which it's possible. Um, unbundling says, let's take the jobs of that adjunct and hand them out to a bunch of people. So someone's a grader, someone's a, someone designs a curriculum that a computer can implement. Someone just says, you know, you're having problem with question two, here's the question two module and sends you a link. And the problem with that is that at some level, the academy is for thinking. And so you need people to actually think. So we're not producing shoes, we're producing thoughts. And while teams of scholars together can produce a thought, each brain has to think. Mm -hmm. and, and whether for the student who needs to be introduced to brains thinking and minds working, or for the professors or the absence of professors in an unbundled context, a grader doesn't have to produce those thoughts. Nobody has to produce a curriculum. But going backwards, so the problem of the PhD, there's two problems. One is the university has underinvested in its faculty. And so it's not that there aren't enough jobs, it's that more and more of those jobs are precarious. The second piece is how do institutions respond? Well, one response is do nothing, which for a long time was the response. Nowadays, at least in the humanities, there is a kind of pulling back on the number of PhDs being produced. How much? Is it, do, you, do you have numbers on that? I think it's quite dramatic at some of the schools. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't have numbers, but that's a, I that, think- That's so against interest um, in, in, many, in, in many ways. Um, People are motivated by multiple things. Interest is only one. <laughs> well, I mean, I meant, I meant in an economic sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Because uh, that does a major. I mean, gosh, a lot of people might have to teach more, or you might have to hire more people. I mean, that's, these are. So that's the other yeah. piece, right? Yeah. You know, maybe that people at you know, I think one of the things that goes wrong in our public conversations is we talk about the crisis facing the poorest students who are dropping out of community college and having huge debts, and we blame Harvard for it. There are totally different problems, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. but, and they're resolved in different ways. But one of the things that the top schools have to confront is that their professors do very little teaching. Yes. Um, but most of us teach quite a bit. Yes, we do. Uh, I talk, so most, so that image that professors don't teach is not true. Actually, Well, I don't right? want to, I don't want to brag, but I will. I once taught five, five and frankly, <laughs> I kind of prefer farming to that. And that's the only, well, that is, that is oh. yeah, I would say that most professors uh, whinge and moan uh, for no reason at all about the work they have to do. My response usually is you should try farming. Um, and five, five though is, you know, farming starts to look pretty good. Uh, I have to, and also while writing, while writing your dissertation, and also to just make things even more interesting. Yeah, but my argument in this book is that one of the other ways that disciplines like ours have responded, like history has responded, is say, well, look at all the generic thinking, critical thinking skills you develop through a PhD. And I say that too is kind of unconscionable for two reasons. One is, if part of what I'm talking about is the academic purposes of colleges. Um, the PhD is a professional degree, but it's a professional academics degree. Yeah. People come in seeking to become academics. That doesn't mean you have to be a professor. You can become an academic working in museums. You can become an academic working in nonprofits. You can become an academic and work in Hollywood. But but you seek you have certain kinds of commitments that need to be respected. Yeah. And second, why have someone spent seven years or six years in a PhD program 
to get an MBA. Yeah, like or, that, or, or to or I to mean, or to become a a, a graduate advisor, or to, yeah. or to be an undergraduate, you know, advisor, or to yeah, um, like in in higher ed admin, you in mean. higher ed admin, yeah, which is yeah, uh, no, that that doesn't make sense. Like and, if you want, if you're saying the history PhD exists for certain purposes, let's be true to those purposes. Yeah, and if we feel that, you know, we can we can modify them, we can make PhDs a little less onerous by reducing the time. We can make them a little more broad mm -hmm. so that, you know, people could say, you know, I want to spend, you know, I may not want to be a professor, but let's not pretend that just saying, look, PhDs can make a lot of money working for corporate America. That's not shocking to me, but <laughs> oh. it just seems like a, it just seems like if I were told I could do that, I might've gone to business school or law yeah, school. I might've done that first. <laughs> <laughs> And also been quite successful, right? Yeah. And if people want to do that, more power to them. And if people end up, but, you know, it's it's not what you go into this for. And, it, and we need to be true to our purposes. That's kind yeah. of the argument. You, uh, it's, uh, I, I don't want to be cynical, but cynicism is so often then rewarded by higher education's actions. Uh, but I think the, the whole alt-ac move is a way, in some ways, I realized, oh, it's a way of like keeping the, 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 the floodgates open at their current level. And just sluicing some people, the the majority of people, off towards and saying, well, you know, we can still use their PhDs to some benefit, right. you know. Um, uh, the other co comment is uh, you you make several suggestions. Uh, I think they're good ones about, like, for example, um, giving a changing the nature of doctorates. So maybe having a two tier doctorate. Um, we also might just give an MA and try to beef up the MA or something like right. that. Right. You know. Right. Um, well, my comparison is to like Masters of Divinity program. Right. Yeah. That, well, that's a very provocative. That's another thing I was going to say is that we should be thinking about doctorates as essentially ministers. They're supposed to be a real call and vocation. Right. Uh, there are some people that probably that go get their MDiv and decide, yes, I'd like to be a mechanic. Or like your colleague, um, Matt Crawford, decide, nah, uh, I, I think I'll just go repair motorcycles instead. Uh, which is fine with me. Which is fine, <laughs> but that's not what you know. Uh, why you will go to get your PhD uh, at right. at the University of Chicago? That's not right. really the intent, you know? right? No, I think that's absolutely right, and I think it should be a calling. But I also think there are two things you know that I appreciate about the ministerial analogy. One is the calling notion, mm. but the other is recognizing that ministers can perform their work in more than one context. Yes. And so we should both think about the various institutions where, let's say, broadly humanists work and how we can prepare people to work in those institutions. So the professorship is not the only form by which one can live out that calling. But that's a different statement. It's still more bounded in the purposes of graduate study than just saying, well, a PhD prepares you to be a CEO at Dow Chemical, you know, like – yeah. That's wonderful if you want to be doing that. Right? Yeah. And if you're that person, that's great. But in some ways, the PhD, unlike the undergraduate degree, is and like a, you know, minister's degree, is somewhat professional. It is preparing you to enter a particular, you know, line of work. Well, and it, it should have. Some... Yeah, and it really it is of course a research degree. So let's talk quickly about right. research, and I think very related to this academic writing. Um, so they're into, they're joined at the hip uh, necessarily. So it's the PhD is supposed to prepare you by you offering at the end of it, showing that you're ready for a life of research by giving a 
what we call what used to be called a masterpiece and now has a different connotation then it was just enough to show that you are capable of setting up shop on your own as right. it were it wasn't right. the best thing that you ever did god help us all it was, it was what made you go from apprentice to yeah. the next level right? to the next level um, or for journeyman to the next level, or whatever it was. I, I, right. We're, of course, as early American historians, we, we don't know nothing about this material culture jazz. Um, but uh, research, we have a very hard time of explaining why it's what, what it's for. I mean, I notice this yeah. NPR all the time. We've just discovered a sub-negative sub-boson in the, you know, emanating from the Magellanic cloud. Well, what's the use of this? historian then the, the sponsor will this and you can hear them thinking will this lead to better microwave ovens and the scientist is never quite certain what to say right what 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 do you think they should be saying what should what should all of us in the gaijin research be saying well i think there are two there are two things or at least two things i mean the first thing is i think what we should not be saying is every academic should be writing for the public because the purpose of academic research is to push the boundaries of knowledge. So there is a community of specialists and not everyone can read a physics journal article. Not everyone can read a history journal article because not everyone is at those edges. That's okay. That doesn't mean it's okay for everything to remain on those edges, right? We need the insights whether they're the insights of history or the insights of physics or the insights of chemistry or the insights of literature or philosophy to reach publics, whether it's through the formation of new products and new inventions or the formation of new ideas or new understandings that might reshape what people think or what policies we pursue. Um, there has to be some way for those to get back. But to pretend the problem is just because you don't understand what's happening on the edges of the scholarly world. That's how scholarship works. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it work. The question is then who's going to bring it forward? You know, there are historians who write for the public and there are journalists who mediate between the academic world and the public. I mean, there are people who do podcasts even. I hear that. Uh, I hear Yeah, I've heard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and those things matter a lot because then it brings it forward. But we see – so that's step one. Step two is we should not presume that – we always know the outcome of something and it's all predictable. You yeah, know? I think that's I, the most important point. You know, so I quote Ronald Reagan and he says, you know, the remarkable, remarkable thing is that although basic research does not begin with a particular practical goal, when you look at the results over the years, it ends up being one of the most practical things government does. And he talks about the way that things are invented and ideas are produced and, you know, and you say, oh, we can use this for something. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I talk about the way in which scholarly research coming out of the sort of social science history movement about thinking about the history of the family was vital to um, the Supreme Court decision for gay marriage, right? That, that, that wasn't, it wasn't like 40 years ago, people had that agenda. I knew that this is exactly, it's going to lead to this Supreme Court decision is that people started understanding and exploring new things. It's not that people knew how the internet would work. It's that people started doing things. Yeah, I, I would. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, as I was thinking about that. One of the purest, I think, for a humanist, uh, uh, certainly since well, even the Middle Ages and certainly then the Renaissance, the most pure act of humanist scholarship is editing a text. 
um, which is something I always thought that's like the, I think if you're a medievalist, you really have to be training yourself to eventually ed- edit a text. Yeah. Um, even if you're a historian, you have to be ready yeah. for that. Cause totally. that's, that's like, that's what you should be doing in early American history in our field. I think the, the, Manhattan Project of the last, well, it's been more than 30 years, isn't it? Is the creation of these massive American founders uh, papers, uh, which are now many of them online, thank God. Um, and we've got Madison, Washington, you know, Franklin, uh, Jefferson, uh, Hamilton, uh, John Jay is somewhere. In pro- but these are, and these seem very <laughs> austere. Uh, right. They seem uh, pointless. Uh, why bother? But of course, um, these are just the elites. But one of the, un, I think, perhaps unintended consequences is the act of documentary editing, of modern documentary editing, meant identifying every person that's mentioned in the papers. Yeah. And so now we have this incredible prosopographical database of of ordinary people that just pop up uh, that these immensely skilled and hardworking editors have tracked down. And, yeah. And now we have a different way. We have a different, we have a directory of people at all levels of society. Uh, that I don't think that was predicted in 1960 or right. 1950 when right. the Jefferson papers began at Princeton, but it's happened. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and it, that's, you know, I think of it this way, right? Like we don't, we don't say because the majority of small businesses fail, we should get rid of entrepreneurship. Right. But then we say, well, not every scholarly article creates a breakthrough, so we should get rid of scholarship. No, you know, you don't know which one will. No, you don't. You know, you don't know that this book or this article is going to resonate or be picked up next tomorrow or five years from now, and produce an insight. And in fact, and so yeah, you know, yeah. when people say a lot of things go unread or don't do a lot of work, they're right. Mm-hmm. And most small businesses fail, but I don't want to get rid of the possibility that we'll have people developing small businesses with new things and new ideas, and and some will succeed in ways that are unpredictable, and some will be amazing. And we also know that uh, level of po- – and this is difficult to explain to tenure committees, uh, but the level of immediate popularity doesn't necessarily indicate uh, future uh, impact. And that's Oh, all. not at all. Right. So we look back and say that we like quarterly – 30 years ago, and you read this article and you say, who the hell wrote that? What happened? That's amazing, you know, and something like that. It influences you. Well, that's, you know, no one, that's, that's a, you can't predict that once again. Uh, and, and very important academics have died uh, not knowing uh, their influence. Um, I, well, this I, is why when people like Bill Gates say, you know, we can just have an online university with the star professors Go through those star professors' footnotes. There's a bunch of articles. Then go through those articles. There's a bunch of other footnotes. Yeah. And go through those articles. And you're like, you know, hundreds of people who may never have been a star professor contributed to the work of that star professor mm-hmm. and made it possible. And that's how scholarship works and ought to work. Mm-hmm. Now, you uh, defend basically along the same lines, academic writing, that it's to advance the field. It's to, uh, it's going to be esoteric because it's necessarily esoteric. Um, could you expand on that just a little bit? Well, I mean, I, I, you, you say what that, I say is I'm defending 
the fact that it's inaccessible to all readers. What I say is there can be good writing, good academic writing, and bad academic writing, just as there's good journalism and bad journalistic writing. Yeah. That the fact of inaccessibility, which is often used as the criteria, is not what should determine whether academic writing is good. And yeah, I agree with that. I, I think you're, you're, you begin by talking about astrophysicists disco uh, discovering certain uh, waveforms. Yeah. Uh, I think, however, that's really a bad example. I mean, that's, that is, uh, they're trying to translate equations into English for the purposes of a journal article. Uh, I certainly can't read their equations. I'm not surprised that I can't read, hardly read, barely read their English. And also, I, mean, I, I, I don't know, with them. I don't know the reference of their English. I don't know to what it refers. Um, so I, I think in the humanities, however, there's there's something else going on. I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I think I think there's some of that is true, that there is in the humanities sometimes an overcomplification or obfuscation. But I also think an uninitiated person could not open the Journal of American History and understand why some article is so important mm. without having a background in the historiography, the development of the field it's in, certain methods, certain references. So there are also references that they that a historian will understand, a trained historian working in the scholarly field would understand that someone else wouldn't. Um, you know, I think one of the things, and this goes back to an earlier comment you made about, you know, mathemat mathematicians and physicists writing books, but you have few historians toying around with calculus. Um, I mean, one we should say is they're very rarely writing books that are scholarship for those other disciplines. No, that's right. But the second piece is um, that, for, you know, and I don't know this is good, actually. I don't know that we are scientifically literate enough as a society. Or, but we have allowed, I mean, the humanities are so important to living that everybody needs to engage with them. And so the stakes of inaccessibility are different. But I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I say that very tentatively because I'm not sure it's okay that we don't understand how our computers work. Mm. You know, I'm not sure it's okay that we've, you know, we have a kind of lack of knowledge of how the scientific and technical parts of our lives are put together and controlled and determined and, you know, the guy who maybe that that's, we've been willing to allow other people to control that knowledge. Yeah. Well, but it is a testament to how important the humanities are that people feel really stressed when it's inaccessible to them yeah. because. That's a nice point. That's a nice point. I, my, even my, the guy who repaired my refrigerator yesterday doesn't know how it worked. He just pulled out the memory board, uh, from one of the two memory, uh, one of the two, uh, you know, processor boards in the, and then replaced it. How that works, you know, he doesn't know. He just knew that yeah. it was bad. Um, There's so many things like that. That's a very nice point though about the humanities. Um, I do think that the, and I'm, I'm not certain why this always is, but I, I do think that there has been um, a tendency towards increasing obfuscation uh, in academic writing. I think that has something to do with the fear of the narrative um, or the, uh, anger at the narrative. Um, yeah. I think, um, it has something to do with, uh, as we discussed before the, there was an article a couple years ago, I think in the Chronicle about Orwell versus Adorno and how Adorno has won in uh, higher ed. Um, I, I prefer Orwell. Um, I think, um, to be able to express yourself clearly, even while making reference to, um, 
a context which is unfamiliar to a reader, I think is important. I don't like, um, I know Rick Atkinson's a nice guy. Um, uh, he knows a lot. He's a very good writer. I wish that we weren't uh, farming out histories of the American Revolution to journalists. Um, I think that we could, if uh, historians spent some time, and I know many do, um, paying attention to style and to structure, uh, we could uh, achieve um, something that is scholarly and yet approachable. I say approachable. Um, you can All of us can approach Mount Everest to a certain height, although we might not be able to get to the peak. Yeah. Um, but it should be, that's, I think we should be appro uh, approachable rather than uh, inaccessible from all directions. So I think, I think there's, multi, you know, you're taking a very complex set of questions. I mean, part of the reason academic writing and the humanities social sciences become so complicated are different. I mean, the social sciences, part of it has to do with empirical methodologies that seem to want to, you know, un understand every contingency and think there can be a formula. I think you're right that part of it going on in the humanities has to do with a kind of discomfort with common sense understandings. And so how can we, you know, create critical methods that distance ourselves from it? Mm. Um, I think also, let's so take, take one of my undergraduate professors who I admire, Gordon Wood. I think if you were to read his William & Mary quarterly article, it's much less accessible than his book. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are different rhetorical situations. His book is deeply scholarly, but I think if you read it not as a, if you read it without an understanding of the historiography of the American Revolution in which he's engaging, you could read it and not know any of that. But you also are missing the scholarly part of the work, right? Mm -hmm. um, but even, even Gordon Wood, who's a beautiful writer, writes academic prose well, but it's in an academic rhetorical context in the Will Mary Quarterly, and he doesn't use the same rhetorical you know, no, I, tools when he's writing a book that's going to be published by a trade press. Yeah, I, I, and I think that's I agree. okay. There are, different, there, are different, there have to be different languages. Uh, what I'm saying, it's okay to be bilingual. Um, I think it's okay for some people to – I think it's absolutely essential that some of us are bilingual. Yeah. I think it's okay for some of us to just be physicists and historians producing the knowledge. Okay. If there were no people able to do the other piece, that would be very bad. I'll, I'll grant that. I, I suspect also things change over one's career. Um, when I was in seminar uh, with Daniel Walker Howe, we asked uh, Dan after we had the political culture of American Whigs um, – Tremendously important book. Uh, we asked, "What would yes. you What would you change?" He said, "Now, first of all, he he discussed some of the people that he wished he had talked about." Um, and he said, "Also, I would get rid of that stupid first chapter with all the historiographical and you know uh, stuff, because really, I don't need that. I we could just I could have done it all just in the linked biographies, um, which I thought was interesting. And of course, at, at the time, he was." You know, in the in the process of writing, uh, I think, a, a equally scholarly and masterly uh, history of the uh, what hath God wrought of the antebellum right. United States. So that was very much on his mind about how to do both. Uh, right. uh, and um, you know, I think what hath uh, God wrought works on multiple different letter levels. Right. I agree. Uh, anyone who reads Chernow can read it with delight. Right. Um, 
anyone who's really interested in going into the market revolution uh, can read that with and look at the footnotes. And say, ah, you know, this is ah, you know, they can and they have that different argument going on in their head. Um, so let's close out now. Um, you describe four options at the end of the book. Four options. I'm so suspicious of not three, not two, not three. I like that I wasn't three. So you were going to take like the middle option and show that you're, you know, safe. I'm more complicated than that. You're more complicated (laughs) than that. Although when I say four, I say to myself, one of five or six or seven. Um, So what are those four options? Well, what I'm really doing. So I have a, I think the conclusion, it says four options for an academy beyond the multiversity, right? So what happens? So the question is, let's pretend that, all the things people have been saying, whether in condemnation or praise, that the university is becoming more vocational, more practical, more commercial, mm. more efficient. In other words, from my perspective, less academic. Mm-hmm. Let's say all those things are true, whether you consider that good or bad. Let's just say they're true. I'm not sure they're true, but let's say they're true, that those, those are, that is the future. Um, and I've just written a book that says we really need to care about the specific virtues, practices, the goods involved with academic thought. With thinking. Well, we don't want to lose that, right? That's the question. We don't, the, it matters to the world. It matters to individuals. It matters to our capacity to produce knowledge. We need to find alternative ways to produce that. So my four options are kind of think pieces. Like they're not meant to be comprehensive. They're not meant to be the only options. The point is, let's remember that the academy and the university are separate things that have been co-constituted. But, you know, there's all kinds of people in the world who do work about, who educate, and they don't work in the university. Mm-hmm. So what are some options? I said, well, and they, these all have historical precedents. One would be sort of faculty members sort of become, you know, kind of individual teachers on a market. And yeah. they maybe have licenses or things, but, um, but it's the Adam Smith option. It's actually One option. very much uh, related to our conversation with David Staley. It's a lot like his platform university at its best. Well, his book, his book is doing this in much with much more sophistication. Yeah, it's very interesting. Mine yeah. is than you know than I do, but I think we're thinking along similar yeah, lines. I think you are, yeah. You know, which is this is not the only way. And if this if these institutions are not committed to certain kinds of goods, let's find other ways to produce those goods. Mm-hmm. One way would be more market oriented. Another mm-hmm. way would be more philanthropy. Right. And that, you know, these don't have to be mutually exclusive ways. No, I think uh, they all work. And so, and a third work. is, you know, you know, a kind of pushback among faculty to reclaim academic freedom through unionization and rebuilding and advocacy. A fourth is what I call the yoga option. And I'm kind of taken by it, you know, which is, you know, people say that's funny, you know, but academics should become yoga teachers. We hang out our shingles. We have. Ne- but if you think about yoga teachers, karate studios, um, Almost any music teacher, yeah, you know, they they sometimes work in multiple contexts. You know, they sometimes work part time at a school. They have a studio of their own. They're often herbalists. They're all they're often apprenticed to masters. They learn through a local master. You read their biographies, and they say, "I learned how to do this from," just like I say, "I learned how to do this from my graduate advisor, Peter Onuf, right? Mm-hmm. And and they open up practices. They share knowledge online and offline. They, and you think, well, that sounds crazy, except then you remember that that was the enlightenment, you know, all these salons and coffee houses and Royal academies outside the university setting 
produced the foundations of the modern university. Absolutely. And I mean, so it's not that crazy. It's not that crazy. <laughs> I mean, not that crazy at all. And I mean, so, what was Dr. Johnson doing in you know in, in London? He was doing that in a, in a way, and he was yeah. certainly engaged in teaching and forming a forming a culture. Uh, yeah. With, with just by drinking with Joshua Reynolds and Garrick and all the rest of those people, they were engaged in uh, cultural replication and reinforcement, you know, yeah. and, and all the rest of it. But scientists too, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying this is simple. I'm not saying it's the ideal solution, although I think some real good things could come of it. I think we'd, we'd be a little more broad in how we do things. I think, um, you know, in some ways, there's few people I admire more than music teachers who have found a way to provide this thing that people want for their students. But, you know, I mean, sometimes for their kids, but I, a lot of adults learn how to play instruments. Mm -hmm. uh, well, it's interesting. This is getting to, um, there's been some attempts, I know, amongst charter schools in New Orleans and so on to go back to the one room school uh, yeah. and to experiment with that and how it would work. Um, uh, there's some other uh, for-profit actually like focus academy i think it's been trying to do stuff like that as well uh, where it's basically a storefront and uh what they call the university model the kid comes in as they want and as they need you know for a one-on-one -on -one tutorial and then out again and i think uh thinking like that in higher education would be could lead to some very fruitful experimentation i don't it can't work at right now uh because of accreditation issues uh, well, I, I say that. Like, yeah, there's all you, kinds of you do. Uh, Chris Gallagher admits it. David Staley says it openly. Um, and I think the next step forward towards a um, way of preserving higher education, uh, as I said to you before, quoting the leopard, everything must change, that everything must can stay the same. The way of preserving what we love about higher education is to change a lot of things. And I think the first thing to do is to the most delicate task will be altering accreditation, uh, realizing that some bad things are going to happen that we won't like. Right. But in such a way that hopefully more good things will happen. Right. Um, and that might, mean, that might mean also some of us, like you're very against for-profits and I, I'm very against every for-profit I've yet known about. Yet I, at the same time, I think of uh, something like a... Um, a company of scholars, which is essentially what every Oxford college is run by, is run by, say, uh, 25 fellows who are shareholders. Um, it's a, And if it goes bankrupt, they're personally li liable. I think there's something very delicious about having skin in the game uh, in the most profound and meaningful sense. Uh, would be a, a very interesting way of altering our, the way that that college is run. And if it was set up in that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason I end the book the way I do is the point of college is to ensure that there are scholars capable of doing certain things and there are students capable of learning certain things. And it's the point of college is not necessarily a certain set of buildings or a certain set of institutions, except to the extent that those buildings and institutions make college possible. But it's the education and the scholarship that matters. And I think you're absolutely right that, you know, that a lot of things will need to be changed. But part of the purpose of my book is to say, in an age of reform, we need to first remember what it is we want. 
And the next step is to say, okay, how do we achieve those things better? And I think some of the ways we achieve those things better may look very different than how we do it today. My guest today has been Johan Neem. He's professor of history at Western Washington University and author of What's the Point of College? Seeking Purpose in an Age of Reform. Johan, thank you for joining us uh, again and being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rodat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 